You're listening to Comedy Central. Like I'll do two a week and then I, um, actually, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you, maybe all you guys, because we all got to do the test to come in here, right? So like I, was, I, had, I had a random question for you guys. When you're getting your COVID test done, like do you think you should like flare your nostrils when the person is, is doing it? Like, because I feel like, do you know what I mean? I feel like the person is doing it and then sometimes we just leave our noses, we like, they do all the work. I, I almost feel like it would be polite to just like try and like flare them just to give them a bit more room. I like try and do like a little thing. But then sometimes I feel like I'm a creep. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like they're doing it and then they're like, is this guy enjoying it? And I'm not enjoying it, but I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to make this easier for you as a person. I just do like a little, it's just my way of saying like, thank you. Thank you for your help. And I appreciate what you're doing for me. And I mean, no problem. I don't know. It's just like no one taught us how to get your nose jabbed. I'm just, I'm just saying. Coming to you from the heart of Times Square, the most important place on earth, it's The Daily Show, Ears Edition. Coming up, hot people make us sad. How babies are made. And Carmelo Anthony. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Daily Show. I'm Trevor Noah, and today is Wednesday, September 15th. Let's kick things off with Instagram. The reason every wedding has its own hashtag now. Let's face it, scrolling Instagram can be pretty depressing, right? The whole thing is just seeing people you'll never smash, wearing clothes you'll never own, in places you'll never go. So we've all pretty much known that Instagram is not great for your mental health, and I think we've known this for a while. But it turns out that Instagram also knew this. Instagram can be damaging for many teenagers' mental health, most notably teenage girls. These are the internal findings from Instagram's own parent company, The Wall Street Journal, citing three years of the tech giant's internal studies, including one leaked PowerPoint slide from March 2020 that reads, 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Another from 2019 reads, teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression. The Wall Street Journal's Jeff Horitz, writing 6% of American teen users who reported suicidal thoughts traced the desire to kill themselves to Instagram. The research seems to contradict what CEO Mark Zuckerberg has said publicly. The research that we've seen is that using social apps to, to connect with other people can have positive mental health benefits. Oh, that's weird. The research I've seen says that I can keep making money and there's nothing maladjusted ab ab about, about me, about me, ab ab about, about me at all. But that's right. Instagram had secret data that it is in fact making us crazy. You know, sort of like how the tobacco companies always knew that cigarettes cause cancer and they didn't say a thing. Oil companies knew about climate change. They didn't say a thing. I almost feel like there should be a new law that every company's internal research has to be made public. You know, that way we as the public, we know the same shit that they know at the same time. We don't have to wait 50 years to know what's actually in Girl Scout cookies. Thin mints cause Alzheimer's? Oh man, well at least I know. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> what? Thin mints cause Alzheimer's? Well, at least now I know. Nom, 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 nom. How many cookies have I eaten? And by the way, you wanna know how I first realized something was up? It's when I started getting targeted ads for apps to calm your mind and help you unplug. I mean, that's basically the algorithm staging an intervention. And meanwhile, my reaction is like, damn, 
I wish my pictures of raindrops looked that good. And even if your social media addiction isn't making you depressed, here's another story about how it could actually be getting you into trouble in a totally different way. The LAPD is under fire tonight after it was revealed that officers were instructed to collect social media accounts on every civilian they stop. According to documents obtained by the nonprofit Brennan Center for Justice, officers have been ordered to start collecting a person's social media handle or username when they file reports on an incident. The practice was started in 2015. The LAPD issued a statement saying social media handles can be critical pieces of contact information along with phone numbers and email addresses. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. This is, this is a bad idea, right? No one wants to give their social media handles to cops. You know, maybe except for influencers. They'll probably start robbing banks just to get followers. Oh no, officer, you caught me. Hashtag follow and subscribe. And also, what exactly do you cops think you're gonna find on social media? Like, you're never gonna crack the case because someone posted hashtag TBT to me murdering Jeremy. And I know it seems like a small thing, but how is this even any of the cops' business, right? Can we not have one place in our lives where cops aren't on top of us all the time? People don't go on Twitter to get arrested. We go to Twitter to get canceled. And finally, some environmental news. As you probably know by now, farming is a major source of pollution around the world, right? Fertilizers contaminate waterways, pesticides get into our food, and not to mention all of those single-use disposable tractors. But one big thing is ammonia emissions, which damage soil and contributes to climate change. But now researchers are taking that on at its source. How about this? Finally tied, some scientists are working to potty train cattle. That's right, cows. Researchers in Germany say 11 out of 16 cows actually learned to use the mulu when they had to go in just two weeks. Turns out livestock waste is a serious issue. A single cow can produce about eight gallons of urine a day. So far, the potty training uh, researchers have only focused on urine, but they claim cows could probably be trained to go number two as well. Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Cows can use the bathroom now? Yo, that's amazing. Because I mean, that means now your mama doesn't have to shit in the backyard anymore. Oh, 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 if there were people here, it was just gonna be like a thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but for real though, I mean, this is crazy news. Not just that cows can use a toilet, but that it only takes them two weeks to learn how to do it. Like it changes my perspective on cows completely. Like what else can cows do if we just give them a chance, right? can probably read and we've just been jerking off their nipples. And I do wish that this would actually make a difference in the cow's lives, like you hope it would, but you know it's only gonna be another popular selling point at those fancy restaurants. Well, our ribeye tonight is grass-fed, pasture-raised, and potty-trained. Yes, two weeks. I will say though, being able to pee does have some benefits for the cows. You know, it means they can finally use the excuse that humans use to get out of boring conversations. Wow, really? You got milked twice today? Oh my God, that's great. Hey, I, I just gotta run to the bathroom. Yeah, no, no, I'll be back, I'll be back. This is fascinating. Mm. All right, but let's move on to our top story, Afghanistan. The only thing harder to get out of than a gym membership. Just hours before America pulled out of the country last month, it got in one final drone strike at a suspected terrorist, you know, for old time's sake. Except now we're learning more about who was actually droned. 
New questions tonight about a U.S. drone strike that killed 10 people in Afghanistan. The New York Times reports the strike mistakenly targeted an aid worker, not someone connected to ISIS-K. The man's vehicle was said to be carrying bombs, but he was actually transporting water. There's mounting evidence that that drone strike killed an Afghan working for a U.S. aid group, along with nine others, including seven children. A U.S. military investigation into the drone strike is underway. We know from a variety of other means that at least one of those people that were killed was a ISIS facilitator. Uh, so were there others killed? Yes. There are others killed. Who they are, we don't know. But at this point, we think that the procedures were correctly followed and it was a righteous strike. Okay, maybe we have different dictionaries, but if you killed one guy who you're still not sure was a terrorist, but you definitely killed seven kids, I don't think righteous is the word I would use. You know, in fact, when you hear people use righteous, it's usually to justify terrible things that they know they've done. Like the Crusaders said they were righteous. Colonizers said they were righteous. Terrorists say that they're righteous. You killed families and children. Yeah, it was for a righteous court. F you, I don't care. Like, you know, we just observed the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And what do we say? Never forget, right? Which is a powerful and necessary sentiment. And it's true. I'll never forget. I'll never forget hearing the phone calls from that day. I'll never forget seeing the towers fall. I was in South Africa. I was a child, and I will never forget that day. But if I'm honest, I think we need to expand on what never forget means. You know, I also feel like we should never forget how easily our fear can drive us to do horrible things to other human beings. Because as terrible as this drone strike was, what's even more terrible is that when you look back at 20 years of the war, there's absolutely nothing unique about it. The past several years in Afghanistan have seen a rise in the number of civilians killed. The first half of 2019 marked the first time that US and Afghan forces were responsible for more civilian deaths. In 2008, we have the highest civilian casualties from airstrikes. By 2011, those numbers have gone from over 550 civilians killed in airstrikes per year down to around 100. Then when the Trump administration comes in, we see a complete flip. And it really goes into the idea that we're going to bomb the Taliban in submission. Yeah, think about that. At one point in this war, America and its allies started killing more civilians than the Taliban. I mean, that's a huge failure on the part of America. And now that I think about it, it's a failure for the Taliban too. I mean, if you're killing more civilians than the Taliban, what's the point of being there? Like if you're trying to catch the candy man, but you're killing more people than he is, at some point people are just gonna be like, all right, all right, well maybe we should just stick with the candy man. At least he's got candy. What, what do you mean he doesn't have candy? Well then why, why do they call him the candy man? Why don't they just call him the killer man then? Oh. What makes it worse is that nobody ever seemed to face any consequences for these deaths, right? There's no other job in the world where you can just accidentally kill innocent people and then show up to work the next day like nothing happened, right? Nobody at the hair salon is ever like, hey, Vanessa, rough day today, but please remember for tomorrow, maybe use a little less conditioner and also try not to kill an entire family. Otherwise, great job. Yeah, see you tomorrow. Okay, bye. Because America's air war in Afghanistan was regularly killing civilians. And what happened? Was there a public outcry? Were charges filed? No. 
for the most part, no one even really cared, right? For most of the country, the war in Afghanistan was something most Americans did forget while it was happening. And that's not what wars are supposed to feel like. A war should be something that is impossible to ignore. But to most people in America, this war became like when you forget Netflix is on, right? And then they have to pop up that little thing like, yo, are you still alive? And best believe, the people of Afghanistan knew that the war was happening because to them, the terror of America's drone war was a part of everyday life. And never forget that when a drone strike goes wrong, it doesn't just end up killing lots of innocent people, it also turns possible friends into definite enemies. Most Muslims around the world condemn the September 11th terrorist attacks on the United States in 2001. But many consider the U.S. response to the terror attacks far worse. In fact, some of the more controversial tactics that the U.S. used in Afghanistan, such as night raids and arbitrary detentions and airstrikes that sometimes kill civilians, created discontent in local communities and actually helped the Taliban recruit more fighters. Kareem Khan, who's from that tribal region, tells me his brother and son were killed in a drone strike in late 2009. He is suing the CIA, but given the chance, he says, he'd take revenge on those responsible. I will kill them. If, if Allah give me this opportunity, I will kill them because they are responsible for killing my, my brother and my son. Drones are creating uh, not just one generation, but generations of jihadists because if you kill a father, his son will come, and then if you kill the son, his grandson will come, and this is what is happening. Man, this is such a shit show. Forget being a four-star general. Like, if you just watch kung fu movies, you would know this was inevitable. If you kill someone's family for no reason, they're gonna want revenge. And can you blame them for wanting revenge? Right? This is, this is what anyone would feel. Any human would feel this. Imagine if, like, I don't know, let's say Norway blew up your house, killed your entire family. You'd be devastated. And I promise you now, it wouldn't make you feel any better if they told you they were actually trying to get some guy named Gary you wouldn't be like, oh, you were trying to kill Gary. Oh, but you killed my family. Well, <laughs> oh, no hard feelings. Good luck finding him. He sounds like a bad dude. Oh, and if you're, if you're not the kind of person who's swayed by emotional arguments like bad to kill children, never forget that war, even wars that you barely know are going on, well, you're still paying for them. How much did the war in Afghanistan actually cost on the accounting books? Between the initial invasion and 20 years of supporting the Afghan government, estimates are in the trillions. It's an astronomical number. Our experts explain that's because the war was basically paid in debt, and every day the cost of the Afghanistan war actually goes up. According to the Congressional Research Service, from 2001 to 2021, the Department of Defense allocated $837 billion for military operations. But that isn't the final cost. We fought this war on credit, and so uh, this was mostly borrowed money that we used to pay for the war. The total cost they've estimated is $2.261 trillion. The Afghanistan war cost about 300 million bucks a day for two decades. It is an eye-opening number. Sweet Lord, $300 million a day for 20 years. A day, oh! Wow, I feel like I'm gonna be sick. Think about it, for the last 20 years, Americans have been fighting hard about where to find money for healthcare, for education, for infrastructure. In fact, half of the reason Americans hate each other is because they're always fighting about money. You know, like forget about schools and hospitals, for $300 million a day, America could have made a new Fast and Furious movie every day 
for 20 years. Yeah, we could be up to Fast and Furious 7000 by now. We're gonna drive a car into the sun for family. Man, but we did that like 2,000 sequels ago. Yeah, but this time the car is green. So look, I know it's almost impossible to rule out wars forever, but the least we could do, the least we could do the next time we even consider getting into another war is to never forget that it might not actually make anybody feel safer or safer at all. You know, never forget that it'll cost you a fortune. And most importantly, never forget that there are innocent people on the other side. All right, when we come back, Desi Lydic goes into labor. Yep, you definitely don't wanna miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Show. Women's contributions in history often get overlooked. So to solve the problem, we turn to Desi Lydic for another episode of not history, but of his hurry. Oh, childbirth. It's like 3D printing a person. Bringing a baby into this world isn't easy, but for most of recorded history, other people, usually men, have been dictating to women the terms of their own childbirth, even when they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Time to take a couple of deep breaths and push out another history. all the way back in ancient Greece. Plato may have been one of the greatest philosophers of all time, and he could definitely rock that casual tunic look like nobody's business. But when it comes to baby making, he was clueless. He thought the womb could literally wander around the body like one of those DVD screensavers. Whoa, is that an eyeball? I am definitely on the wrong floor. As dumb as Plato's dumb ideas about women's anatomy were, they were accepted by male doctors for centuries. And doctors couldn't do their own research because for most of human history, male doctors refused to even watch a woman give birth. They avoided the delivery room like it was an idea a woman said in a meeting. In fact, in 1522, a curious German doctor decided to sneak into the delivery room dressed as a midwife. And guess what? He was burned alive for it like the most extreme drag race challenge ever. So because men didn't have the balls to see a vagina, it was up to the midwives to deliver the babies. That is until the mid 16th century when men realized how much money they could make by doing it themselves. But even in the delivery room, men were still so squeamish about seeing lady parts that they made women lie on their backs and cover their legs to deliver. That's why lying on your back is still the standard delivery procedure today. Even though there are so many more comfortable and efficient positions a woman can give birth in, on her side, squatting, on all fours, or how I did it, standing in line to get into the Gucci sample sale. Fun fact, if you find a placenta stain on the scarf, they'll give you an extra 5% off. Aside from awkward positions, men started doing all kinds of things to women we never would have chosen ourselves. We all know what this is, right? Now, why do you think this was invented? To chop down trees, hunt down unsuspecting hotties? Wrong. Originally, the chainsaw was invented to assist in childbirth. How horrifying is that? At that point, I'd rather just let the baby grow up inside me. It's no surprise male doctors would come up with the idea of chainsawing a baby out of a woman because a woman's pain was never really taken into consideration, which is crazy because pain is the most traumatic thing about childbirth. Well, that and going on Maury afterwards to find out who the child's father is. 
But for a long time, men believed that women should feel pain during childbirth, that it was part of her destiny. So painkillers weren't even an option. In 1591, a woman from Edinburgh had the gall to ask for pain relief during the birth of her twins. And no joke, she was burned at the stake for it. Yeah, another one. Apparently just telling someone no wasn't invented for another couple centuries. Painkillers were largely off limits until the mid 19th century when Queen Victoria used chloroform for the birth of her eighth child. She raved about it, which made it even more popular. She truly was the original mommy influencer. Thanks to Queen Victoria, drugging women during childbirth became much more acceptable. But after a hundred years or so, the no drugs philosophy came back in style again, thanks to men like Dr. Grantley Dick Reed, the first modern physician to suggest women shouldn't get drugs at all because he claimed that women's pain was all in their heads. In his defense, he was probably just trying to get revenge on his mom for giving him that name. Look, if women want drugs during childbirth, that's their choice. If they want to push a watermelon through a bagel hole without drugs, that's also their choice. The problem is when decisions are being made by other people without putting the woman first. And that's not just in the past, it continues today. There's OBGYNs who refuse to work with a doula, episiotomies being performed without consent, and unnecessary C-sections being pushed on women just to work around a doctor's lunch break, which is honestly kind of weird because if you still have an appetite after cutting a person open, then I need a new doctor and you need a shrink. So to all the doctors and medical professionals out there, please listen to the women who are actually pushing another human being out of their bodies. Take their concerns seriously, put their interests first, and for God's sake, please, no more burning people at the stake. Get her! Great. Thank you so much for that, Desi. When we come back, I'll be talking to NBA legend, Carmelo Anthony. So stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is 10-time NBA All-Star, author and philanthropist, Carmelo Anthony. He's here to talk about his new memoir and the upcoming NBA season as a newly minted Los Angeles Laker. Carmelo Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, my brother. I feel like I'm the only person who says Los Angeles Laker, right? Uh, probably. Yeah, probably. that's like, probably. a friend of mine said that to me the other day. He's like, you don't watch basketball much, do you? I was like, I do. He's like, then why do you say Los Angeles Lakers? <laughs> I was like, because the Los Angeles Lakers. He's like, was well, it the LA Lakers? I was like, well, it's the Los Angeles Lakers. The but either way. The Lakers. You're yeah, the, La the Lakers. Call, call, call it the Lakers. I like giving it like the full name. I don't know, I don't know what it is for me. It's just like it makes it, it, makes it bigger for me. Whatever works for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Yes, yes. And um, congratulations on, on adding author to, I mean, like a really impressive list of titles that you already hold. I will say, I think like, like many people, I opened the book thinking, okay, Carmelo Anthony, book, is gonna be basketball. You're gonna teach me how to do those moves. You're gonna teach me how to fake. You're gonna teach me. Right. And yet, it did the exact opposite. It's like, this isn't the story of the Carmelo Anthony we know. This is the story of the Carmelo Anthony that gets to the person that we know. Absolutely. Tell me why you chose to write this book. I just think everybody knows that part of the story. Like, they know the basketball part of the story. They, they, they know you know, the business side right. of Carmelo Anthony, but they don't know what it took to get to that part. They don't know what it, what I had to go through and endure and, and deal with and see and hear uh, before that, right? So we, we talk about the 10,000-hour the rule, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've been doing that. I've been putting my 10,000 hours in, probably a little bit more, in order to get to that point. So by the time I 
shook David Stern's hand, that was the story that I always wanted to tell. Right, right, right. When you read this book, Where Tomorrow's Aren't Promised, I think the title couldn't be more perfect because that is Carmelo's journey. You grew up in a world where there is no tomorrow that is promised. No, none. And there's no journey that's pre-written. When you were writing the book and you're telling us of the story and the world you grew up in and everything that was, was did you take a moment to realize what you've actually experienced to get where you've gotten to? Not until I've, I've read it. Not until I was done writing wow. it. And I read it because I didn't look at it as a place of trouble or a place of, of harm or just, I looked at it, it was life. It's where you live. It, it was life. I, yeah. I, I woke up every day, I saw the same people, went to the same food spots, hung on the same block, same neighborhood, went to the same school. That was my life every single day. Right. So I didn't look at it as it was difficulty. Like it was just life. We had to deal with life. We was going through life. What I was going through, my neighbor was going through. The guy across the street was going right, through the same right, thing. Right. So yeah. We, yeah. We, was a very, we became a very tight-knit community. Carmelo, one of the most signature names like in the world, you know, whether it's in hip-hop tra- tracks, whether it's in basketball, whatever it is, you know what I mean? Melo, my man. It's, 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 it, it's signature. It is yeah. you. You at one time wanted to be Tyrone Johnson. <laughs> Who is Tyrone Johnson? I have no idea. I have no idea. I didn't want to be Tyrone Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't, I didn't understand my name like it was just you gotta understand me break it down you was i came from brooklyn Mm and red hook where it was predominantly black puerto ricans Mm -hmm. italians was in the back uh irish was in the back so we was very diverse when you go to baltimore it's all black right so to hear a name carmelo like you i'm like they not gonna understand what that really is Uh you know so they're gonna they're gonna butcher my name caramelo Caramel, whatever they whatever they gonna do, they gonna butcher the name. So the teacher comes around and she passed the index cards. You gotta put your name on there first day of school. And somebody else's name was on the board from the previous class. And I just looked <laughs> up and I was like, my name is Tyrone Johnson. And I, I took Tyrone and then added Johnson because that was a very yeah it was a common it was a name. common name. Yeah. So Tyrone Johnson, and that's why I became for three days. What I loved is when you talk about how you came to love your name, you know? So you, you, get, you get in trouble at school. Yeah. The teachers call your mom to the school. They go like, yo, we got to deal with your son. She gets there and they go like, Tyrone has been getting up to some shit. And she goes, who's Tyrone? <laughs> so I got in trouble and I did something that I wasn't supposed to do. I right. hope kids ain't listening to this. But <laughs> I, I, ran, I, I knew what time my mother had to go to work. So yeah. I ran home and... I made sure I was there for the phone call to tell my mother. So I like this. My mom wasn't wasn't there, so I knew the phone was going to ring. You're trying to get ahead you, of the whipping. That's you see the caller ID. Yeah. yeah. I don't answer the phone. Right. My mom don't get it. I still go to school the next day as if I was going to school. Right. Backpack, uniform on, in the line, about to walk into the school. I'm the last one. Everybody walks in. I I stay outside in the yard. As I'm outside. For some reason, maybe this was, you know, this was the, the a higher power telling me, giving me a message. My mom comes driving down the street, and I peek around the corner and we catch eye contact. Oh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't make, that, I couldn't make this up. So that's how she found out that you that went I, to I, school. I, I was, I wasn't in school. So she took me back to school, and I was asking questions, and that's when they told her, "Hey, Miss Johnson." <laughs> Your son Tyrone has been suspended, suspended for X, Y, Z. And she's uh, like, My, I don't know any Tyrone. This is Carmelo Anthony right here. 
everyone knows you from the basketball court, but people have started knowing you in different areas as well. You know, I, I remember just from South Africa, mm -hmm. you getting involved in basketball philanthropy around the world. Yeah. You know, you would, you would come out, you would host clinics, you would, you would do it all over Africa, you would you just get involved. Mm -hmm. That's how we knew Carmelo, not just from the NBA. You've, you've been a big proponent of that, getting to the kids. But what I loved in, in, in this book is, you talk about how you, you never bought into the concept that like the sport will just save you. You know, everyone will be like, oh, get the kids into the sport, it saves them, it'll save you, it'll save you. But, but you didn't buy into that. You, you, never, you, you never discard the, you know, the things that happened to you because of basketball, but you don't buy into the myth. Tell me more about that. Well, I just, I just knew and wh where I come from, and again, I, I only could speak on my experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I just knew what I was up against. I knew the odds that, that we all was up against growing up in that. And, it's, it's a number game. You, you're one of X amount of, of, of players who have a chance to make it to the NBA, of thousands of players, of right. millions of people, millions of basketball players in the world. You're one of them. So to fathom that, it's like, that's impossible. And definitely they're not coming back to the wire. Right. They're not coming to the wire to come, to come get one of us. So I kind of just like kind of, I didn't want to hold on to that. I haven't watched basketball my entire life started loving basketball when I moved to the US, got into it, you know, just the stories. And one thing that, I, that, that I've always noticed just as an outsider is how often people have written you off. You know, people be like, well, it's over for Carmelo, gotta hang it up now. Absolutely. Well, gotta hang it up now. Car Carmelo dropping this many, <laughs> I guess it's not over. Nope, it's over now. He's gotta hang it up. This guy, and I, you must remember, I'm just coming into it. So I'm like, is it over? Is it not over? It doesn't right. seem to be over, but it's over, but it's right. not over. Like, it feels like you lived a life where you were written off. It, li it, li it feels like you came from a world that was written off. Do you think that's part of the reason that you just keep putting your head down and making the plays? Is that is absolutely one thousand percent? Yeah, and, and hence why the name is "Where Tomorrow's Are Promise." Like that, that has a wide range of meaning when when you, when you hear "Where mm -hmm, Tomorrow's mm -hmm. Are Promise," and that's a prime example right there. I've I've always felt like I had to like do extra and do more than than the next person. Right. Uh, I always felt like I had to. Not be louder, but I had to show people a lot more of, of what I can do, mm -hmm. my talents and my skill and, you know, just being me. And I, I was battling that for a long time and, and, because I didn't know who I was as a person. Right. And when you dealing with those type of issues and those, those, that mentality, it can mess you up. And I always I'm in a competitive sport anyway, as Definitely. it is. So yeah. I don't want to be competitive in every aspect of my life. I want to come home. I want to relax. I want to turn the TV on, listen to music, drink some wine. And I don't want to be competitive all day, every day. And that's what it does to you, man. It just make you competitive because when you feel like your back is against the wall and people always doubt you and, you know, you're not going to do this. Oh, he's back. Like you said, he's back. Oh, he's not back. He need to go. He need to come back. Oh, what is he doing? It's like, where's Waldo? <laughs> and that's not something I, I, I don't want to live my life like that. You were finding your peace. I was finding my peace. And where I'm at now, I think I've found some of my peace. I'm still on that journey of finding, mm -hmm. you know, being, being peaceful uh, just in, in, in life. But that takes time. And I, I want people to understand that when they read in this story. Like, to find your peace, that it takes a long time. It's I'm 37 process. years old. Right. And I just started over the past couple of years wow. to look and search for that peace. 37 years old, and you are starting another journey, right? maybe one of the most anticipated parts of your career, which is crazy at 37, right. you know, because you are joining the Lakers. Mm -hmm. I was say the Lakers. <laughs> You're joining the Lakers. And um, again, 
people are writing everything off. You know, I mean, LeBron has talked about this. He's, he has fun with it yeah, on Twitter course, and everything. You know, people are like, oh, it's the retirement home of basketball <laughs> players. You know, you got Dwight, you got Carmelo, you've got LeBron, you got Rajon Rondo, you got, this is, this is retirement, this is a right. retirement home. And LeBron has said, oh, we'll show you what old men can Absolutely. do. You feel, it feels like you've been in this position before, but it feels like it's a completely different story every single time. Why did you say yes? Why do you think that this would be different? And what are you hoping to achieve? Is, is there something you're trying to prove? Or are you just in a different state of mind going into this next season? It's, it's nothing that I'm trying to prove. If, if I wouldn't have picked LA, I'd have been at peace walking away from the game. Knowing that I gave it everything I could and I still couldn't win a championship, I would have been at peace with that. I'd have been good. But now that I'm in the Lakers, I can't be at peace with not winning the championship. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's the, you got to change your, you know, you got to change your way of thinking. You got to change your perspective. But being out there at this point in time in my career, we hear all, we hear all of it. We hear that they old and the senior citizen home for, uh -huh, for basketball. Uh -huh. But we just know what we bring to the game and we, what we bring to the table. And I, I say we're wiser. Like, we're wise. We're not, we're not old. 37 is, is young. 36 is, 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 is young. I feel that. It's only old in the, in the sports world, uh -huh, in the basketball uh -huh, world. Uh -huh. So like LeBron said, like other guys said, man, it's just, just watch and see. And I think people will enjoy the show. Hey, man. I know I'll be one of the people watching. Congratulations on your book. Congratulations on the story. I hope everybody reads it because, as you said, you know, it'll connect with not just your journey but how hard that journey actually is and how many people can relate to the story that gets you to where you are today. Absolutely, it's, universe. it's a universal message, I'll say that. I appreciate you, my dude. Thank, Thank you, you so much brother. for joining me on the show. Indeed. Don't forget, people, Carmelo's book, Where Tomorrow's Aren't Promised, is available right now. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, please consider a donation to SBP's disaster response to Hurricane Ida, which recently made landfall as one of the most powerful storms in Louisiana history. SBP's disaster response teams are on the ground and helping the hardest hit communities in Southeast Louisiana. So if you wanna help them provide the support that people need, then please follow the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if the cops pull you over, you give them my handle. I want that follow, goddammit. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.